Well, one commentary I read this week asked, have you ever doubted what the Bible says about God? What about the gospel? When you're alone, do you ever sit and wonder if the things we believe as Christians are really true? I know this is sometimes the case for me, and if you've wrestled with doubts about God and his word, take heart, because you're not alone. But sadly, despite this being, I think, the normal experience for many Christians, that we would have doubts about who God is and what he says in his word, uh, sadly, doubts and questions often do not find their home in the Christian church. It often feels unsafe to doubt and feels forbidden to ask questions. I'm not exactly sure why this this is the case. Perhaps it's the anti-intellectualism that runs through evangelicalism in America, or it's uh, the mistaken understanding of faith as believing in something even when there's not evidence for it, or uh, maybe it's that we've misunderstood the difference between doubt and unbelief. And this is where Uh, Alistair McGrath, the professor of science and religion at Oxford, is so helpful. Uh, He's written, doubt is natural within faith. In fact, doubt comes because of our human weakness and frailty. frailty. But he contrasts this with unbelief. Unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there's no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus and all that he stands for. So doubt arises in the context of faith. It's a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. But unbelief is simply the outright rejection of Jesus. So in other words, doubt, questions, these are a normal part of the Christian life. And the good news is that in many cases, the questions we're asking, the doubts we have, have good answers to them. Our doubts can actually be satisfied. However, the problem with unbelief is because it has rejected Jesus, it can never be satisfied. As many good answers as we might give to the person asking a question in unbelief, they will never see an answer as being good enough. And this distinction between doubt and unbelief is hovering in the background in our passage. As we look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 through 19. At the beginning of chapter, uh, of chapter 11 in Matthew, John the Baptist, the one who has prepared the way for Jesus, the one who has announced that Jesus was the Messiah, is beginning to find doubts in his heart as he goes into prison. And so he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Jesus responds to this sincere question, By offering assurance. He tells John's disciples to tell John what they are seeing and hearing Jesus do. Things that confirm that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. The one who is to come. They don't need to wait for another. Jesus is the one. So to the one who is genuinely doubting, Jesus offers assurance. But by the time we get to our passage, Jesus is not addressing doubters like John and his disciples. But he's addressing crowds among whom many have refused to accept what the scriptures have said about both John and Jesus. And so in our passage, Jesus identifies the problem with this generation. And the problem is their unbelief. So over the last several weeks 
in our Advent series, we've been considering the question, why did Jesus come? But today, we're going to ask a slightly different question. How did Jesus come? And how does that impact the way we approach our unbelief? We see the way Jesus comes forces us to receive him on his terms rather than our own. And we'll see this by asking and answering three questions. First, what is unbelief like? Answer, unbelief is like a fickle child that can never be satisfied. Question two, why is unbelief like a fickle child? Answer, because unbelief is unwilling to embrace either the seriousness of our sinful condition or the joy of God's grace. And question three, what should we do in response? And the answer is rejoice with Jesus because Jesus came eating and drinking. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this morning. As we come to your word, we ask that your spirit would move in us so that we would believe. That though we may have doubts and questions, as we see Jesus today, we would want to believe. We would want to see the answers. We would want to accept Jesus on his terms. So Lord, we ask through your word and your spirit, we would see Jesus as he is, receive him as he is, and rejoice in celebration of all that he's done. Help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that we would come to love and treasure Jesus more, even as he has come to celebrate with us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. Uh, If you're using one of our community Bibles, you can find it on page 816. You'll be looking for a big, bold 11. That's a chapter uh, followed by a small number 16. That's a verse. And once you've found it, uh, just take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's word. You know the distractions and burdens on your heart this morning. Surrender them to the Lord and ask that he would speak to you this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. So what is unbelief like? Unbelief is like a fickle child that can never be satisfied. Jesus asks here what he should compare this generation to, and he compares them to fickle children. He describes two groups of children. One group of children is playing and calling to other children to come and join them. And the other group of children are refusing to join them and play, no matter what game is played. On the one hand, there seems to be something like a wedding game. They're playing the flute and they're dancing and celebration. And as they call to the other children to play, there's children who say, no, we don't want to dance. We'll sit this one out. And so the children playing then change their tune. They say, well, if celebration, if dancing doesn't suit your mood, we'll play a funeral game. We'll we'll sing a dirge and then you can 
pretend more. You can play in that way. But they won't do that either. They refuse to mourn. No matter what, the kids refuse to play. And you would expect the kids who didn't want to dance would be in the mood to kind of be bitter, to complain, to mourn. And you'd expect the kids who didn't want to mourn, who are in good spirits, they'd actually enjoy dancing. But no, these kids don't want either. They refuse to be satisfied. Why? Because the problem is not the type of game that's being played. The problem is they're not playing their game. The problem is that they're not in charge. And so they refuse to be satisfied no matter what the other kids do to include them because they won't be satisfied unless they get their way, unless they're the ones choosing the game, unless they're the ones in charge. And parents, you know what I'm talking about. I can say from my own experience, and I'm sure you've had this experience, where you offer your child some food and they reject it. And so you begin to eat that food because it looks good. And then they get bent out of shape because you're eating their food. And so you offer it back to them. But then they begin to cry because you're asking them to eat the food. The, The thing that they refuse to do at first, they get upset about. And the thing that's opposite of that, they also get upset about. That's a child that will not be satisfied. And we see this play out in all sorts of ways. And children can be fickle. No matter what you do, they won't be satisfied. And Jesus is saying, this is what his contemporaries are like. They're like fickle children who can never be satisfied. Unbelief is offered one answer that they reject. And then on the other hand, they're offered an opposite answer that if they were frustrated by the answer over here, this answer should have satisfied them. But then they reject that answer too. Unbelief is never satisfied because it refuses to believe no matter what. It's rejected the truth from the beginning. So it's no wonder then that Anselm of Canterbury would define theology or the study of God as faith-seeking understanding. The problem with faith is not whether or not we have doubts or questions. See, faith is seeking understanding. It's trying to make sense of its doubts and questions. The problem is whether or not we're open to the answers of faith. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I'd ask you to consider whether your questions of Christianity, the doubts you have about Christianity, your objections to Christianity, are truly doubts seeking understanding, or whether no answer will ever be able to satisfy your question. Are you looking for a reason not to believe? Or are you looking for a reason to believe? One mistake we sometimes make is thinking that more information and more answers will finally give us the certainty we want or need. But if we're looking for a reason not to believe, no amount of information, no matter how many good answers we're given, we will never be satisfied. It will never be enough. Because unbelief is like a fickle child that can never be satisfied. But why is it that this generation is like a fickle child? And why is it that I'm saying this generation is equivalent to unbelief? Look with me in verse 18. Jesus goes on here explaining why he's compared this generation to a fickle child. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, 
and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So why is unbelief like a fickle child? Because unbelief is unwilling to embrace either the seriousness of our sinful condition or the joy of God's grace. The reason Jesus compares this generation to a fickle child is because he says, in this context, when John the Baptist came, he came neither eating nor drinking, and he said, and they said of him, he has a demon. John the Baptist here is representative of the funeral game where mourning is necessary. His sermons were fiery sermons, talking about the seriousness of sin, calling for repentance. And he emphasized the seriousness of our condition and our desperate need for a Savior. And not just that, he took spiritual discipline seriously. He lived in the wilderness, he dressed differently, he ate differently, and he often fasted. His disciples were known for fasting, actually. However, in the severity and seriousness with which he treated his following, his relationship with the Lord. He was rejected, and he was accused of even having a demon. Now, if people were upset for John because he neither ate nor drank, for how seriously he took his relationship with God, for this talk of bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, then you might expect that people would be excited to receive Jesus. Because Jesus says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. This guy's not fasting. He's celebrating. He's rejoicing over the grace that's coming with the kingdom of God. And yet, what Jesus says is they reject that celebration too. They're never satisfied. And so in verse 19, Jesus says that the Son of Man, a self-appointed title he uses to describe himself, came eating and drinking. But instead of welcoming him and accepting him in contrast to John, Instead, they call him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And here, Jesus is representative, again, of that wedding game of celebration and dancing. This is the way Jesus came, often celebrating with his disciples. In fact, at one point, someone asked him, why does John's disciples fast while your disciples seem to always be eating, always having a good time? What's going on there? And Jesus says, How can you do anything but celebrate when the bridegroom is with you? When Jesus shows up, he's marked by this kind of celebration. Even as he emphasizes preaching, uh, he preaches repentance over and over again. His emphasis is joy and celebration that he has come. And as such, he associated with and celebrated with the people who knew they needed his grace. But rather than receive him with joy and welcome, He's rejected for the very opposite reasons they rejected John. Instead of talking about repentance of sin, he is associating with sinners. Instead of fasting, he is feasting. But they reject him too. Which reveals the problem with this generation is unbelief. They neither want to believe John nor believe Jesus, even though in many ways they're polar opposites of one another. They take the asceticism and self-denial of John, and they ridicule him as a demon-possessed maniac. But they take the celebration, the partying, the feasting of Jesus, and ridicule him as a self-indulgent sinner. Now, no doubt, John and Jesus were unjustly criticized here. 
They took the emphases of their message and the emphases of their living and took them to their extreme and criticized their extreme. Yet as I see their unjust criticism, I wonder to myself, could anyone ever say the same thing about us? Do we take our sin as seriously as John? Do we take spiritual discipline as seriously as him so that someone might call us legalistic? Even though we pursue obedience and spiritual disciplines and talk about sin, not out of a desire to earn God's grace, but because we have it? Would someone criticize us unjustly, though, because we take that stuff so seriously? Or on the other hand, Would how joyfully and freely we associate with the wrong kind of people ever lead someone to mark us as gluttons and drunkards, as friends of sinners, no matter how self-controlled and how faithful we are to the Lord in those settings? I fear that would not be the case. The reality is we need to lean into both the seriousness with which John treated sin. We need to pursue spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible, praying, and fasting with seriousness. But we also need to lean into the celebration of Jesus, freely associating with sinners who need God's grace. And I fear that we would never have to worry about being caricatured like John and Jesus because we come nowhere close to imitating Jesus' fellowship with disreputable people or John's self-discipline and self-denial. And yet this is part of the Christian life. Both seriousness and celebration. Both self-discipline and feasting. Both taking holiness seriously, yet associating with the sinner. But in any case, the broader point Jesus is making, according to one scholar, is that if people don't want to believe, they will find a reason not to believe. John and Jesus had ministries that were in some ways polar opposites of one another. And those who wanted a solemn, serious presentation of the truth centered on God's judgment should have preferred John. And those who wanted an upbeat, joyous celebration of the arrival of God's kingdom presence should have been drawn to Jesus. But the Jewish people, this generation, did not want the truth. They wanted conformity to their preconceived notions of what Jesus ought to be like. And so they rejected both John and Jesus. And in doing so then, they missed both the seriousness of our sinful condition and the joy of God's grace. Here's what I mean. The gospel teaches us, on the one hand, that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. We are worse than we could imagine. And yet, at the very same time, the gospel teaches us, we can be more loved and uh, accepted than we ever dared hope. The hope for us is greater than we could have ever hoped for because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Yet, every other religion, philosophy, and way of life wants to minimize both of those things. In regards to sin, they want to say Christianity is too severe, too judgmental. They want to say, we're not actually that bad. There are some good things we can do. All we have to do is work hard enough to be good enough. But in regards to the grace of God, they want to say it's too easy. You might hear someone object. So a serial killer on their deathbed 
could repent of their sin, trust Jesus, and they'd be forgiven without having ever done anything to make up for all the wrong things they've done? The answer is yes. It really is that easy. And yet we don't want it to be that easy. We want to feel like there's something we can contribute. And so, unbelief rejects then both the seriousness of our sinful condition and wants to say, there is something we can contribute. There is some good we can do. And yet, on the other hand, rejects the grace of God, saying there is something we must do. It can't be that easy. And so what should we do in response? Look with me again at verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What should we do in response? Should rejoice with Jesus because Jesus came eating and drinking. Should rejoice with Jesus because Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus concludes his assessment of the unbelief of his contemporaries saying, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now wisdom in the Old Testament is taken up with living in a way that is faithful to God. And he's saying here, those who are wise are justified or shown to be wise by the way they live their life, by their deeds. And so when he says this, what Jesus is implying is twofold. On the one hand, he's criticizing those who persist in unbelief. He's saying, by rejecting these two things that are opposite of one another, you are revealing yourself to be unwise. You're revealing yourself to be unreasonable. You're demonstrating that you're not open to the truth. And the reason they're doing this is because they're not in charge. They want to call the shots. They don't want to receive Jesus on his terms. They want Jesus to conform to their terms. And so, their deeds reveal they are not wise. But on the other hand, Jesus is saying that although he and John have been criticized by many, they are in fact demonstrating by their life that they belong to the path of wisdom. And Jesus in particular is pointing back to the deeds that he used to assure John of his doubts. When John doubted whether Jesus was the one who is to come or whether they should look for another, Jesus told John's disciples in Matthew 11 this, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive the sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus has demonstrated by his deeds. He's the Messiah. He's done what the Messiah came to do. His deeds reveal him to be the one who is to come. And not only that, he's suggesting that if you'll have eyes to see, to not be offended by him, you'll be blessed. But by persisting in their unbelief, and by remaining unsatisfied by any answer that Jesus could offer, they are offended by him. And as a result, they miss out on the blessing of coming to him. They miss out of the opportunity to rejoice and celebrate with the one who came eating and drinking, the one who came feasting and rejoicing 
And they miss out on rejoicing with Jesus because they want to stay in control, not realizing if they would surrender control and finally believe that's where true joy would be found. They refuse to receive him as he is. They refuse to rejoice and celebrate with him because of the grace he has brought. And this is one of the distinct ways Jesus has come. He has come eating and drinking as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, no doubt the people who said this about him uh, meant it as an insult. You come associating, being friends with sinners, the lowest of the low, the despised, the marginalized. Yet this is, in fact, who Jesus is. He is the friend of tax collectors and sinners, the people who recognize they are most unfaithful, that they most desperately need someone to pursue them, are the very people Jesus came to be with, to rejoice with, to eat and drink with, to feast with and celebrate with. So what should we do with our unbelief? Well, instead of minimizing the seriousness of our sinful condition or minimizing the joy of God's grace, instead of insisting that Jesus meet us on our terms, we need to come and receive him on his terms, recognizing that we are, in fact, more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, while at the same time we can be more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope because of him. And so if you are not a Christian this morning, You want to be wise. The only way for you to truly be wise is to surrender to Jesus, to accept him on his terms. You can't keep on looking for reasons not to believe so that you don't have to play by his rules. Instead, keep asking your questions, keep raising your doubts, but begin to look for reasons to believe, even if it costs you everything. And let me tell you, if you believe Jesus, it will cost you everything. This is why, according to the Bible itself, the way of Jesus is foolishness to the world. But the way of God is wisdom. Jesus says something like this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But he who would lose my life, or his life for my sake, will find it. In the paradoxical wisdom of Jesus, we find life by losing life, by taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following him, by saying, I will give everything to you. I surrender it all to you. That's where we finally find life. And it's in the wisdom of the cross that we find how this is possible. It seems like justice and mercy could never go together. But paradoxically, in the wisdom of the cross, they go hand in hand together. Again, we would want to minimize the seriousness of our sinful condition, but on the cross, sin was treated as deathly serious. God's wrath and judgment was poured out upon Jesus in all its fullness, showing how serious an offense our sin was against the holy God. And yet, as Jesus was hung up on the tree. He drank up all the cup of God's wrath. And yet, in Jesus taking on all that judgment, paradoxically, it frees up God in his wisdom to show mercy and grace to sinners, to unfaithful people, to those who are weary and burdened. Because God's justice has now been satisfied. 
The payment has been made. And so now if we look upon Jesus, we can receive mercy and grace. And his grace is all the sweeter because we know how great a payment had to be made. We know how great our sin was. And so by minimizing the seriousness of sin, we actually minimize our capacity for joy. And so if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you, look to what Jesus has done. See how great your sin is. And come to him. Trust him. Receive him on his terms. Because it's in coming to him in all his grace, you will find joy. So if you want to know more about what it looks like, then the wisdom of Christ gain your life by losing it for his sake, uh, please come talk with me more after the service. I would love to tell you more. But if you're already a Christian, I want you to know the antidote to your doubts, it turns out, is not to hide your questions. It's not to pretend the doubts aren't there. But it's actually like John the Baptist did. It's to bring them to Jesus. To ask your questions of him and be prepared to receive the answers he gives you, not the answers you want. And as you wait for him to give those answers, commit to rejoice with him. Commit to rejoice in what you can believe about him and what he's done for you. Celebrate the fact that he died for you. Rejoice with him that he came to give us a feast of grace. And as you have doubts and you have questions, just keep bringing them to Jesus. Rejoicing with him along the way so that you would see that there is a good reason to believe. Because when we believe in him, we find joy to the utter measure. A joy that cannot be capped. And so as you ask Jesus your questions, feast with him, celebrate with him, rejoice with him until you can taste and see that the Lord is good. And as you look forward to the day when faith will give way to sight and you shall see him as he really is, when all those doubts will finally be resolved in the presence of our Savior. And so today of all days, Give yourself to celebrating the birth of our Savior, the arrival of our King, the coming of our Lord. Rejoice with Him and celebrate with Him today. Use today to feast and drink. Use today to be merry. Because Jesus came not just to bear witness to the truth. Jesus came not just to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not just to give abundant life. Jesus came not just to seek and save the lost. Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus came feasting with sinners because his grace is good. He came to be our friend so that we could rejoice with him, celebrate with him, and feast with him. So today on a day where many of us will be celebrating anyway, celebrate as best you can. Rejoice as best you can because of what Jesus came for and how Jesus came. And remember that when he returns and faith finally gives way to sight, the way we're going to kick off all eternity is with a giant party. We're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb, a feast together celebrating the grace and goodness of our God. And so today, if you have already trusted Christ, 
If Jesus has already called you His friend, then use today to rejoice, to celebrate, to feast. Let's rejoice with Jesus because Jesus came eating and drinking with sinners, with unfaithful people like us. Let's rejoice in the grace of Jesus. And so as we wrap up our time in his word this morning, I want to invite you to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. And perhaps these questions can be a help. Are your questions about Christianity truly doubt-seeking understanding? Or will no answer to your questions ever be able to satisfy your question? Does the seriousness of your spiritual discipline or your association with sinners ever result in unjust criticism of you? And finally, how can you rejoice with Jesus today for coming to be a friend of sinners? Let's take some time to reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word. Heavenly Father, you were so good to send us Jesus. And though we have doubts now, many of us have questions. And like John the Baptist, many of those doubts and questions arrive in seasons of suffering and difficulty. We want to believe. We want to trust And we want to bring our doubts and questions to you. And so we ask that your spirit would help us to receive Jesus on his terms, bringing all of our doubts and questions to him, so that even as we wait for those doubts and questions to be answered, even as we wait to the day we can see him in his fullness and have all our doubts washed away, we could rejoice with him now for all that he's done and all that we believe he will one day do. Lord, we ask today you would help us to rejoice. Today you would help us to celebrate. Because we know Jesus has been good to us. And that by his blood, we've become his friends. And so in the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen.